Welcome to episode 254 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Aaliyah Engel. Aaliyah grew up as an army brat and swore she would never join the military. Then after high school graduation, her mom said it was time to move out and she found herself looking at the military as the best option forward. She decided to join the Air Force and started her career in ammunitions and then cross-trained over to finance. She shared about her experience in the Air Force and how being sexually assaulted on a deployment and not having the support after the assault led to mental health challenges and fueled her passion for the work she is doing today as the owner of Work Culture Works. I'm really excited and honored that Aliha was willing to share her story with me and with you, the audience, and I really hope that you enjoy this interview. But before we get started, I want to remind you, you can listen to Women of the Military podcast on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome everyone to Women of the Military podcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you as a guest on the podcast and to hear your story. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited. (laughs) So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Oh man. So it's funny because I was raised by uh, army parents. Uh, Both of them were army and, uh, you know, as I hated moving, I hated it. We were moving every two, three years. And and as a kid, you you lose your friends every two to three years. That's exhausting and and really kind of lonely sometimes. So I was very adamant. I'm never joining the military. I'm never doing that. So I graduate high school. And the morning after I graduate, my mom kicks down my door and says, get out. (laughs) So I said, oh, well, I guess I have to go to the military because I don't got nowhere else to go. <laughs> so that's that's why I went. I just, I didn't have anywhere else to go. And it was the best decision I made. Wow. So you, you had no intention to join the military. You're like, that military life, it's horrible. I had to do that. I did not want to do it. And then you were like, well, I need something. Yep, basically. And then did you join the Army? I went Air Force, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. After talking to both my mom and my dad, they both said, yeah, you need to go Air Force. You can go Army if you really want, but you really should go Air Force. And when I went to the recruiting office, I never even made it to the Army recruiter. The Air Force stopped me before I even got down to the end of the hall. So it it worked out. (laughs) And so were you able to get in really quickly? Because sometimes it takes a bit of time before you can actually head out to basic training. I was, I was, I, I, I was out of there in maybe three weeks. It wasn't long at all. Wow. That is really quick. And what year was it when you joined the military? 2001. Oh, okay. What month was it? I joined in March and I got to my first base in May. So right before 9-11. Yeah. Okay. So you... You got to the recruiting station and the Air Force was like, come in here. And then, you know, three weeks later, you were out. Did you pick your job? Did you go in without a career field designation? How did that all work out? Kind of. (laughs) Kind of. Um, So they gave me a list of the things that I was eligible for. Uh, Based on my ASVAB scores, I was eligible for essentially anything that they had available. But 
as an as a 18 year old kid, I saw those bonuses, those big dollars, and I saw a $12,000 bonus to go to ammunitions. And so I said, okay. And I joined it not realizing what it was just because I wanted that 12,000. That's what 18 year olds do. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, don't you want this bonus? And you're like, oh yes, I do. And you don't ask any questions or anything. You're just like, that sounds good. When I was looking at enlisting, I did the same thing. They were like, here's all the jobs with bonuses. And then there's other jobs. And I was like, oh, the ones with the bonus, that's the ones I want. Who doesn't want a bonus, right? Yeah. Yeah, especially when it's like $10,000, $12,000. That's a lot of money, especially when you're 18. (laughs) An 18-year-old? Oh, my gosh, yes. And, of course, I squandered it on all of the unnecessary crap that an 18-year-old would buy. (laughs) You mean you didn't invest it? No. Yeah, I'm just kidding. So, okay, let's talk a little bit. You went to basic training three weeks after you decided you were going to join the military, and you had just graduated high school, so you were you were really young, 18, yeah, so young. So what was that experience like? Scary. I, I, I take that back, actually. It was very familiar and scary all at the same time because I was raised in that environment, so a lot of the ways that they were speaking to us wasn't intimidating to me because that's, that's what I know. <laughs> Um, but it was also very, very scary and emotional. I actually cried when I put my hand up and swore in because it was that emotional for me. I could see that with all the his family history and, you know, and the culmination of like being where you were and about to start on this new adventure. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So after you graduated from basic, did you go to tech school? I did. I went to my first tech school was in Shepherd Air Force Base in Texas. Yep. So from Lackland to Shepherd. Yep. Just down the street. <laughs> and what was that experience like? It was interesting. It was really interesting. So ammunitions, when I joined in 2001, it was still very much a, a, a male, male-dominant environment. Females had were maybe 5% of the population in that career field. Uh, So I was surrounded (laughs) by men. I was usually the only female. And so that's a very, very different world than you're accustomed to, you know, growing up as a female. Yeah. So how did you overcome that adjustment of being around all those guys and being in that type of environment? Well, I... I kind of learned how to blend in. I kind of became a part of the culture, you know, the, the rough and tough and the grease is all over you every day. You know, you're walking around just holes torn in your uniform because you're always out in the field and, and cussing like a sailor. I had no idea how to behave <laughs> at that age. And it did not help that I was surrounded by a bunch of men all day, every day acting like men do when they're with each other. (laughs) Yeah, and they forget that you're a girl because they're just like, oh, no, you're one of the guys. And you're like, I mean, I am because I want to be, you know, included. But still, sometimes it it makes it a little, (laughs) I didn't really want to hear that. I'm sorry, I was in the room for that one. (laughs) So after your tech school, you went to your first assignment. You said that was in May. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And my first base was Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. 
up near Panama City. Yep. And I feel like you just started your career and then September 11th happened. So we have to talk about like what that experience was like. And so how like had you adjusted to living in Florida and everything was humming along and then boom. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, when I first got there, I was going through upgrade training the whole time. So I I didn't actually do my job for a, a while. So I was doing all my training. I was learning how to do everything. And then 9-11 hit. So immediately they pulled me from my primary job and put me on patrol. And I did patrol until I left. So I never actually did my job <laughs> at Tyndall because of all. Yeah. So they took you from you were learning like the hands-on skill, like you went to tech school, but then you have to learn how to, you know, your craft and learn more about it. And then they were like, we need a body. Yeah, basically. Stand over here. So what was that experience like to go from like learning your job and, you know, training for something that you had signed up for and then being on patrol? How long were you on patrol? It sounds like for a long, long time. I was at Tyndall for about a year and a half, two years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a long time. I don't, I, I didn't really think much of it though. Honestly, it was just I did what I was told. I was very good at doing what I was told because I was raised by military parents. So this is where I want you. Okay, that's where I'm going. <laughs> so you didn't really think a lot about it. You were like, this is what the military wants me to do. And this is what I'm going to do. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially from an army brat. You're like, okay, tell me where to go. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then I'm surprised you were only at Tyndall for a year and a half. What is that normal that you move around that much in your career field? Uh, no, but I had, uh, I didn't know this at the time, and, and I actually became very savvy with this system later. Um, I had accidentally volunteered for an overseas assignment. <laughs> I was in the system, like, you know, putting my, updating my preferences. I didn't realize that updating your preferences basically throws your name in the hat. <laughs> so when I did that, I got the assignment, and so... It was maybe a day after I told my boss, I'd really like to be here for a while. I like Tyndall. <laughs> and then the next day I found out I inadvertently volunteered to leave. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. So you updated your preferences like on the back end and kind of thought that was something personal and no one would really see it. And then you found out, no, the military saw it. And they were like, yes, we got one. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up in Guam. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so you went to Guam, which is very, I mean, it's still kind of like ocean-based, but very different than very. You know, the, pan, the panhandle of Florida. <laughs> yeah, the Pacific is very different. <laughs> Much more um, tumultuous. The beaches are not nearly as uh, human-friendly. You know, there's a lot of rocks and coral and stuff like that so you out there you usually have to get on a boat to go out in the water the beach isn't really savvy for our feet <laughs> that's no fun yeah so you ended up in guam you're like 20 ish years old yeah so so what was that experience like oh my gosh it was wild it was wild i so ammunitions is usually, not always, but primarily an outdoor job. You're out, you know, in, and we're 4,000, at minimum 4,000 feet away from the rest of the po population on base to keep them safe just in case something happens. So you're, you're isolated and you're outside all the time. And so I, you know, I became 
very, you know, rough and tough, kind of like a, almost, almost kind of like a grunt, you know, everything was hard and fast and do it now. And 12, 15 hour days was nothing to me. That was just the way, that's just the job. It comes with the territory. I never thought about it. And I was there for a year and uh, it went by so fast because I was working like that all the time. And did you go to actually do your job this time? I did. Yeah, I actually got to do a lot of, of ex- ex- I got to have a lot of experiences associated with ammunitions in Guam. It was, it was fun. That's cool. That's cool. Are there any other stories or experiences from that time that you want to share before we move on? Mm, I will say that I got hurt a lot when I was in Guam. Um, Ammunitions is actually a pretty dangerous field. And it's not just, you know, bullets and stuff. There's bombs, missiles, all kinds of stuff. And I got hurt a lot, like a lot, a lot, to the point where I had to make a decision. I need to change career fields or get out because this is too much on my body. Uh, I almost lost a finger. I almost lost a leg. I All kinds of stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Not like a twisted ankle or a bum knee, like really bad things. And was it because of like the physicality of the work that you were doing and just, and, and how many hours you guys were working? So like, I mean, that would take a lot of your strength out of it, you know, just to do the job. Yeah. For sure. And when you're talking about 19, 20 year old kids out there doing these kinds of things with bombs and rockets, <laughs> you're, you're going to have accidents. So, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Sometimes you're like, think about the responsibility the military gives people at such a young age. And you're like, I don't I don't know how there's not more, you know, accidents because we're so young and we think we know everything and we know nothing. And yeah, so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> For sure. Yep. So you said you were either going to get out or you were going to cross train. So which one of those things happened? I ended up, well, so I got, after I left Guam, they sent me back to Florida where I was stationed at Eglin. And Eglin is where I did end up applying to cross train. And they, they sent me into financial management. So I got a desk job after that, sort of. Finance is a desk job stateside, overseas, not so much, but yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so did you, when you transferred, did you have to go to tech school again and learn the new career field? I did. And that was very interesting being an NCO in a classroom with a bunch of brand new baby, baby airmen. You don't know anything more than they do uh, concept wise. Like you're still learning financial management, just like they are. The only difference is maybe, you know, a little bit more about the the military and the culture behind it, you know, but that's it. So they look up to you and you're like, dude, I don't know either. (laughs) Did you have more freedoms? Like, I know that sometimes with tech school, like they give you different, you know, as you get through the course, sometimes you get more privileges. Did you have more, you know, privileges because you were, you know, you weren't a brand new military person? I did. So when I was there as an NCO, they just put me in lodging instead of in the dorms with everyone else. So I, I, I definitely was granted a more flexible adult life. Yeah. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Cause I, I would not want to be like back in that situation well, after Woo! you're like, wait, now I have freedom. What's going on? Yep. So, okay. So how long was that school? Oh, that was eight weeks. It's shorter now, but at the time when I went through, it was eight weeks. 
And then did you go back to Florida or did you go to another place? Yeah, so they sent me back to Eglin and I was going to just transition over to the finance office at Eglin. And I did, but basically as soon as I got there, I received word that they were opening the Air Force Financial Services Center up in uh, South Dakota, Ellsworth Air Force Base near Rapid City. And the the idea was they were going to take all of the finance folks in the Air Force or at least 90% of us, and send us all up to one central processing unit, kind of like USAA did it. Um, so as soon as I got back to Eglin, I found out I was part of the 90% that was going to be shipped up to South Dakota. So I left very quickly. <laughs> you were like, I'm back and now I'm leaving. So you moved from Florida to South Dakota, a little bit of difference in climate. <laughs> Ooh, huge difference. <laughs> what time of year was it? February. So I drove up there in the middle of winter and coming from Florida, I had no idea how to drive in that. So yeah, of course I was driving through South Dakota, slipping off the interstate here and there. It was, it was, it was fun. <laughs> that's a crazy story. I, yeah, that's crazy. That's funny that they're like, we're moving everyone to South Dakota and we're not going to wait till May. We're going to do it right now in February. Like whose idea was that? I don't know. Big Air Force does what they want sometimes. <laughs> That's funny. That's just like the craziest time to, you know, you don't want a PCS in February to a place that's frozen. So you went from like working in a base in a little office, you know, for the base to this headquarters where they're like trying to, you know, put everything together and streamline processes. So what was like the difference of like moving to something like that? I mean, it seems like very different. Yeah, it was a completely different culture. Uh, so I came from, you know, a, an environment where it was mostly men. And so a lot of cussing, a lot of your uniforms aren't that important kind of thing, you know, whereas I get to South Dakota and there's much more women in, in my career field now, in my new career field. It's more like 50-50 in finance. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm surrounded by my girls. This is great. But what the problem with was, is I had already become a part of that other culture. So I came into this new culture, not realizing how different, how drastically different it was going to be. And I struggled to fit in. I was rough. I cussed a lot. <laughs> I offended a lot of people. And, and it took me a long time to understand why the shift was so different and why it was so important to be uh, adaptable to those types of environments. Yeah. I mean, people talk a lot about the transition out of the military, but that sounds like a similar type of transition where you're like going from this really, you know, hands-on work where you're you know, getting dirty, cussing, hanging out with the guys, and then you're in this pristine office environment where everybody's like prim and proper, and you're like, this is not the military I was in, and so that's that makes a lot of sense. And so how did you overcome that? Did it just take time and adjusting? It took time. I got, I got, I got hemmed up a few times. Um, it's a learning process, right? You don't, it, sometimes it takes longer than others, especially when it comes to, to culture. You know, the culture can be completely different from one office to the next, even within the same career field. So um, learning how to be adaptable and learning how to fit into new environments 
and learning how to influence those newer environments is, is one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned, but also one of the most valuable. Yeah. Those hard lessons, they really have such an impact on you and can, you know, lead. They're really hard to go through at the time, but then, you know, on the other side, you can figure out how to use what you learned in different ways and see how much you've grown as a person. So I agree with that. I heard you say my job was an office job when I was at home station, but when I was deployed, it wasn't. So can you talk a little bit about like where your deployment falls in your career? I might be jumping way far ahead, but I, I can't not ask that question. <laughs> well, it's, it's perfect timing because my first deployment was out of South, South Dakota. Um, but so finance, you know, it's a desk job stateside, but when you deploy as an airman, you're usually like a TCN third, third country national escort, or as an NCO, you usually go as someone that carries a backpack full of cash and a gun by themselves <laughs> and goes from, you know, location to location. And, and you're usually with a unit that's, you know, like I, I went with the SEALs once and, you know, you go to, with different units. You're usually the one finance person with a bunch of other people traveling and you, it's called a paying agent. I, I usually don't say that just because most people don't know what paying agent means, but that's the title. So yeah. <laughs> and what, where did you deploy to? Uh, the first one was IED in Qatar. That just sounds so crazy. You're like, I have a backpack full of cash and I'm supposed to pay the contractors and yeah. Yep. And it's, it's interesting because you still have to do all of your documentation, right? You still have to keep track of receipts and invoices and all that fun stuff. And that's really, really fun <laughs> when you're dealing with people that don't speak English. And sometimes you're literally bartering right with a dude that's walking a donkey down the road, you know, like <laughs> sometimes you don't know if you're even going to have those things. So that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always thought finance, I didn't know, you're just teaching me all these things. I always thought finance was like, I worked with people doing finance, but they were doing the like office portion when I was deployed and we didn't have pay agents. I don't really know how they got paid, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, that's just a crazy thing. So, but it, with how many people, like how many contractors and how much work was happening, you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, all you did everywhere. Like, it sounds like you guys were in high demand for deploying. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. When I, at the time when I retrained into finance, they warned me um, ahead of time, finance is the second most deployed career field in the Air Force. So do not do this unless you want to deploy. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay. I mean, at the time I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. So I was, I'm not afraid to deploy. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea that I knew that like contracting and those career fields were really high and they are in finance. So, you know, you think I could make the connection, but I'm a little slow sometimes, but that's just crazy how high the ops tempo was for a career field that, you know, and it's so different. Like I'm in an office in a pristine environment and then I'm out, you know, attached to a SEAL team. <laughs> yeah. What? It happens all the time. Yeah. 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 And Al-Udeed is the only base over there that actually has a fully functioning finance office. They take care of everybody's deployment entitlements out in the deployed environments. All of that stuff goes back to Al-Udeed like a hub. And so I worked 
uh, probably 15, 16 hour days in that office because it was the hub. Yeah. So, and then did they do, and then the hub in South Dakota is kind of the same thing, but for the people stateside? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you said that was your first deployment. Mm -hmm. How many times did you deploy and where did you go? Twice. The second one was Honduras. Honduras. So, okay. I, I know someone who deployed to Honduras and she had such a crazy experience. She was a civil engineer. So she was doing, you know, the other side, making the contracts and, you know, figuring out how much they should be paid. And then uh, I'm sure working with finance. So what was that experience like? Man, culture shock, culture shock. So Honduras is the murder capital of the world. Um, you don't go to Honduras unless you're prepared to protect yourself from kidnapping and you know, trafficking and all that fun stuff. Uh, you don't even go off base un unless you've got an entourage with you because something will happen. It's very eye-opening to go to a place like Honduras. When you go off base and you see villages that are you know, three miles up a mountain. This mountain is so steep that no vehicle can get up there without sliding back down. So you have to climb by foot three miles to bring food to these people because they're so poor, they can't come get food. And so we did that every weekend. It's eye-opening for sure. Yeah. I mean, going to different countries and seeing the way, like, so many people in the world live and how different it is from america it is very eye-opening and i like you're like it's the murder capital of the world i'm like i don't think that's a title anyone wants but, no. <laughs> but tourists, I mean come here we're the murder capital of the world <laughs> like a postcard yeah. <laughs> no no you're right and it's but if you think about it we wouldn't be there if it wasn't a problem right wow that's crazy. So are there any other things? I think that's really kind of cool that you had this humanitarian mission attached to your job where you would go and, you know, climb a mountain, bring people food. But were there any other challenges or experiences you have while you were over there or down there? Um, I, I did experience a sexual assault while I was there. And that changed the complete completely changed the traje trajectory <laughs> of, of my future. Um, you know, my aspirations, my, my needs, everything shifted after that. I went back, uh, I went back home and, uh, I, sorry. That's okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to re recall real quick. Take your time. Take your time. That time frame was really rough for me because I, I had I, my I actually lost a lot of memory from that time frame because of that day. Oh, that's right. That's right. OK, <laughs> so I um, just to, just to fill in a little bit of blanks, I went from Ellsworth after they um, shipped everyone back out of there. They sent me to Keesler where I was an instructor. And that's where I went to Honduras is I, I left Keesler to do that. So then I came back to Keesler and immediately within a week, they sent me to back to Eglin. <laughs> so I never left Eglin really, not the, not in the long term. <laughs> yeah. 
And so, well, that's like a bunch of change. You're dealing with, you know, the trauma and then you go back to Kiesler and then it's like, and now you're moving again. And I mean, yeah, you moved a lot, a lot. <laughs> which is what you hated growing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least I was used to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how much, so you said that that incident, you know, being sexually assaulted changed the course of your career. So did that lead you to decide to get out of the military or what exactly happened and how did it affect you? Um, the incident itself didn't make me want to leave. It was the way I was treated afterwards that made me want to leave. So I didn't say, I didn't report it at the time um, because I just knew, I knew leadership. I was a part of the sexual assault program on the base at the time. So I knew what would happen to me if I reported it. So I didn't, I kept it to myself and I did not do well with that. I, I, my behavior significantly changed. I, I was, you know, very emotional, very erratic, very reactive to things in the office. And I became a problem. I became a problem because I didn't seek help. I didn't report it. I, I just, I kept it in here and it changed who I was as a person and as, as an NCO. And it's really sad because, I mean, it's really sad. You were part of the sexual assault program. So you were like, I'm not going to report this because I know exactly what's going to happen and I don't feel safe. And when people don't feel safe to report, you know, when things like that happen, it creates, a, you know, an environment where those things happen and then you don't feel safe. You don't talk to anyone and it's inside of you and you're like, I'll just, I'm just not... I'm not thinking about it. It's not a problem. It's in a box, but it's a, it's changing you as a person and affecting you in ways and and people on the outside don't know what's going on and they sometimes they don't ask the right questions. So, yeah, so that that would be really hard. I can understand that. I I dealt with trauma from my deployment. It wasn't related to sexual assaults, but I didn't talk about it and I just put it in a box and didn't talk about it and it just kept eating me alive and was really challenging and so mental health is so important. So I'm sorry to hear that happen and I'm really want women to be able to talk to people and for this to change and I know that there's a lot of work and advocacy being done but there's still a lot of work to do because everyone should be feel safe. Everyone should be able to report something that happened and not have to worry with how they're going to be treated because so many women have talked about the assault or the rape was you know traumatic but the real trauma was how they were treated afterwards yes yep every time because they they felt like they were stabbed in the back again over and over and they didn't have that support that they needed yeah so did you decide on your own to leave the military um, kind of. There there was a little bit of a trigger. So I went back to Eglin and uh, I was only there for, I think, two years, not long at all. And I received word that they needed a resource advisor over at Hurlbert. So they sent me over to Hurlbert and I started working as a resource advisor and a first sergeant and an exercise planner for a, a, it's a school for like the top tier officers so like the top 1% can only they can get into this school and um, they're trained to basically be the most elite of the elitist <laughs> uh, of the aviators. So I, I was, I was a trainer. I was a 
first iron, I did the resource advisor stuff. I did everything. Some we were in the sky some nights. We, I was in the ground some nights. You know, it was wild, and that was a wild two years. Okay, but while I was there, um, I, I still was I was still dealing with all the trauma. My 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 personality was it was demonstrating things that somebody that knew me knew that wasn't me probably should have said, "What's going on?" What happened to you? No one ever asked those questions. No one ever asked why this um, top performing NCO is now all of a sudden a piece of crap. Nobody ever asked those questions. And I became, I kept feeling more and more alone, more and more depressed. And then um, I actually became suicidal at one point and a friend of mine that I had known for a few years, he noticed the signs, he recognized the signs, and he came to my house one day after I had not been at, been to work for three days and no one even noticed. He came over to my house, kicked down my door, found me, and, and took me to the ER. And I was able to, thank God he didn't tell leadership because that would have made it much, much worse for me. I was able to get myself out of that. I was able to get the treatment that I needed to heal. But once I did that, once I found that healing, I said, I can't remain a part of this entity anymore. I trusted them to protect me and they failed. And then when they failed, they continued to fail to take care of me in the aftermath. So I, I can't be the part of this anymore. Yeah, thank goodness that he came and found you. And I mean... That's so sad that he was the one and it wasn't someone saying like the leadership wasn't like, where is she? Go get her. It was him on his own prompting. And then, you know, he didn't even report it because he knew you'd get like, you shouldn't get in trouble when mental health, that, that is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Like you shouldn't get in trouble, but sometimes that's the way it is and you don't get that support. So I'm glad that you were able to find healing and, um, and then be able to, leave the military. How long had you been in the military when you decided to leave? 19, 19 years. So at the time, after I, I overcame all of that, I ended up applying to PCS one final time just for my own health, for my own mental health, because I couldn't be around those people that were treating me like that. It was worse and worse and worse for me every day. So I took an assignment, my final assignment to Maxwell Air Force Base. And as soon as I got there, I had to, I had to accept a two-year extension to take that job. So I did. I extended out to two years. But as soon as I got there, I, I hit the retirement button. I said, I'm, I'm out of here as soon as, as soon as my time is up. We're not, we're not mincing anything. It's, I'm leaving. <laughs> But I was very, very, very fortunate while I was at Maxwell because I had a supervisor that was very understanding and she she knew I was struggling. She never asked why, but she knew something was wrong and she knew I was trying to uh, heal. And she she was very understanding, very flexible. She was always by my side if I ever needed her. And because of her, I, she's, she was a significant part of my healing and, and I owe her everything. <laughs> and do you think it was good that she didn't ask why and that she just provided the support? Is that what you needed or? Yeah. 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 Um, I was going to, to therapy. I was going to therapy on base. It wasn't working. 
I didn't like it. It was very, very, very structured. I don't, I don't do well with homework and worksheets and all that stuff. Don't make me do that stuff, man. Let me just, let me, let me just talk. Let me just get it out. Let me just tell you how this feels. So while I was active duty, I tried and it didn't work. But after, after I retired, you don't have to do that structured type of curriculum, you know, with mental health. So I was able to find, get some real help that I really needed and it helped. And and I'm actually, I feel, I feel healed now. I'm still, of, of course, I have the lasting effects, but I take everything that I experienced and I learned and I turn around and I give that back now so that no one else will ever feel what I felt. You seem like a bright shining star. So like you're so upbeat and positive. And so it, it's great to see that you've come out the other side and that you were able to get that healing that you needed because I mean, it is, it's a, it's a trauma and it stays with you, but you find ways to cope and you find ways to, you know, find healing within yourself and um, be able to move past it so that you can be who you are and help people. So how are you helping others today? Uh, Well, I'm doing a couple of things. I, I help veterans with their transition process. Uh, when I was transitioning, I, I, I transitioned right in the middle of COVID. So I had no resources. I had nothing. I didn't even have taps. So I collected all these resources for transitioning veterans. And then once I finished my transition, I created uh, a drive. So now when I uh, other veterans that are transitioning contact me, I send them all the resources that they need that I didn't have when I went through my transition. In addition, I opened a, a consulting agency called Work Culture Works, where I create help managers create environments that don't put people in those mental places anymore. I love that it's two-sided, like the veteran piece, especially because you transitioned out during it's COVID, during COVID. It's like, you're like, I didn't even have TAP. And I'm like, TAP is horrible, but it's better than nothing. So especially it's continued to get better. I've been out for 10 years, so it's not the same that it was 10 years ago. But I love hearing how you're helping like with the transition piece and providing resources because I think it's so invaluable. Veterans know so much and people leaving the military have no idea like everything that's out there. And so that's really great. And then you're helping on the other side to, you know, help ensure that people aren't, you know, struggling with their mental health and that the work is able, the work environment is able to create a culture that helps people. So that's really cool that you, you got both sides going. I love that. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Is there anything else from your time, like of transition out of the military that you want to touch on? I mean, COVID, that was not, not a good time to leave the military. COVID was a blessing and a curse. COVID forced us to find ways to do the job in a non-traditional sense. How do we meet the mission without being, you know, nut to butt, (laughs) basically? How do we do this? And we had to be very creative and innovative. But, you know, we as a force, as a whole force, as, as a military, learned how to get the job done despite a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, and I can see the ripple effects. My husband's still in the military and he has the opportunity to work from home some days and there's a lot more flexibility and and just understanding of like life problems as a military spouse. Sometimes you feel, I mean, I still feel it because his TDYs often don't match with what I want my schedule to be, but there still is a little bit more flexibility and understanding of like, 
the family matters too. And so I think that the military did have to be innovative and they had been kind of stuck in a rut for a long time of this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it. And then COVID was like, nope, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> Not today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah <pretty> much. <laughs> so true. That is, that is a one really positive of how the military culture has changed and the flexibility. And I don't really like seeing that a lot of organizations and businesses are like trying to pull back to like have people come into the office when, you know, the business kept running. And I understand like the need for people to be in the office. Sometimes you have to be in the office to get work done, but you also can, you know, find the flexibility so that it works for not only the company, but for, you know, the person who's working so that they can spend time with their family and get the most out of. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to talk about, about the work you're doing today or anything else from your time in the military? I don't think so. I think we covered it. Well, I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Find an ally and find many mentors. Your allies are going to have your back in those tough scenarios. Even if they don't say anything, if they're just there for you, they're with you by your side when you're going through it, it makes it so much easier. Just find, get yourself an ally. Mentors have been through what you've been through. They know how to help you get through it. They can guide you so that you don't suffer. So get those allies, get those mentors and, and stay with them through the entire way. I love that. That's great advice. And I created a mentorship program because I think mentoring is so important. And when I was in, I didn't know where to find mentors. And so if you are listening and you want to be a mentor or if you want to be a mentee, you can go to the link in the show notes and sign up for that program. So thank you so much for your time, for your openness, for sharing your story. I really had fun getting to know you and hear your story. Of course. Thank you for having me.